This is TSC Now, a podcast from the TSC Alliance. Hello, and welcome to TSC Now. I'm your host, Dan Klein. April is Autism Awareness Month. So in this episode, I do a deep dive on the past, present, and future of autism research in TSC. Joining me this month is an expert on the subject who has spent a decade studying how autism presents in TSC, whether we can identify biomarkers for autism, and she's now looking at the effectiveness of early intervention for those at risk for developing autism. Her career has taken her to Boston Children's Hospital, then she started her own lab at UCLA, and now serves as Chief of Neurology at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Here's my conversation with Shafali Jeste. So I'm now joined by Shafali Jeste, Chief of Neurology and Las Madrinas Chair at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Shafali, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks so much for having me and very uh, appropriate to be talking with you during Autism Awareness Month. You know, I reached out to you because I was really interested in your perspective on autism more generally and autism in TSC because it's been the focus of your career for many years. But I guess to start, what sparked your initial interest in the early development of autism, autism intervention, and ultimately the treatment of autism? Particularly in the context of TSC. I became really interested in studying early signs of autism because we knew all along that children with TSC were at a quite high likelihood of eventually having a diagnosis of autism. We know that it's up to 50% even higher of children with TSC end up with an autism diagnosis. And additionally, we know that we're diagnosing babies with TSC sometimes even before they're born. So there's this huge window of opportunity in early, early infancy where we know a baby has TSC and we can start asking, are there early signs of autism or early predictors of autism that we can identify so that we can start treatments or at least screening earlier? And so that's how the interest started. And I'll just say that there's a really large field of research in early prediction of autism. There's groups that are studying other groups. So they're not studying babies at TSC, but they're studying babies who have older siblings with autism, or they're studying babies that have other genetic conditions. And in all those other studies, what's been found is that you can actually see some early signs, even in the first year of life, which is a good two years before we're making an autism diagnosis. And so again, that's a great opportunity to start thinking about early interventions. And so we actually, and when I say we, it was myself and my colleague and mentor, Dr. Chuck Nelson, who's at Boston Children's Hospital, you know, we put our heads together and thought, well, why don't we study babies with TSC just the same way that others are studying other groups of infants that might be at higher likelihood of autism? And so we started this work over a decade ago now, which I can't believe it's been that long. And we started studying babies with TSC as early as we could, oftentimes right after birth. And we were studying behavior and brain development to just ask this question about whether we could identify these early, early signs. And so you kind of alluded to finding these signs or biomarkers for autism. How is autism ultimately diagnosed and what were the findings of the research done to try and find these early signs of autism? So autism is a diagnosis. And I always really emphasize this, especially with my patients and my parents. Autism is a diagnosis based on behaviors. So there is no blood test. There is no biomarker that will diagnose autism. Autism is based on a list of behaviors that are identified by caregivers, by meaning parents, also by teachers or anyone else who's really interacting 
interacting with the child, along with any experienced clinician who can, you know, evaluate the child as well. And what are those signs? So to meet criteria for autism, you you need to meet two kind of buckets of criteria. Okay. So bucket one is having challenges in social communication skills. So what does that mean? That means, you know, having challenges in the way you socially interact. For a young child, that could be things like making eye contact, gesturing, having appropriate, what we call nonverbal communication skills, like making facial expressions or identifying emotions from other people's facial expressions, right? So basic kind of social skills. And then as kids get older, we look for challenges in how kids make friendships, how they build relationships, how they play, how they interact with other people. All those areas are challenging for children with autism. The other big bucket is a bucket that we call restricted interests and repetitive behaviors. So in that bucket, children meet criteria if they have a lot of what we consider a kind of inflexibility in their behavior. So meaning if they get really stuck on certain behaviors or certain routines, and it's very difficult for them to stray from those routines to the point that it becomes really distressing. And we all like routines, right? That's okay. But if it gets to the point where like, if your routine is broken, you know, you will have a meltdown or you'll have a really, really difficult time that becomes problematic and challenging, you know, so in that bucket, so that's restricted, you know, kind of behaviors or interests, repetitive behaviors are things like playing with toys, you know, repeatedly in the same way, or insisting on playing with the same kind of thing over and over again, or insisting on talking about the same topic over and over again. You know, so I have patients with autism who, for instance, are really focused on dinosaurs. And no matter what I ask them about, the conversation somehow always steers back to dinosaurs. Now, that's not, again, a terrible thing in itself at all, but you can imagine it becomes challenging and problematic when it limits a child's ability to learn other things because they're so focused on one topic or one way of behaving or one way of playing. So those are the two big buckets. And so to meet criteria for autism, you have to have symptoms in both of those buckets. And so we can identify those symptoms based on, again, directly interacting with a child. And that's what I do when I see kids in clinic and also getting a history from parents and from teachers. So you need both of those sources of information to make a diagnosis. To go on to your question about biomarkers, it's a great question. So what's a biomarker? So a biomarker is basically any objective measure that may map onto a condition. In autism, you know, you might ask, well, what would a biomarker be, right? Where does autism lie? Like, what's the root of autism? Well, we know with autism is fundamentally an issue in the way the brain develops. The way the brain is, I like to think of it as the way the brain is wired. So the way the brain is connected is different than it is in a typically developing child. And that's also true in TSC. And so the biomarkers we look for are biomarkers of brain connectivity or brain function. In my lab and you know Chuck Nelson's lab, and this is what we did in our early detection study, we used a measure called EEG, which a lot of you know because your kids have got EEGs to screen for seizures or to monitor epilepsy treatment. Well, that same EEG can be actually used to map brain connectivity and brain function kind of in real time, which is kind of amazing. And so we use EEG as a tool. And through EEG, we have found some biomarkers, especially in early infancy, that seem to be different in the babies that end up developing autism with TSC. So early on in this conversation, you mentioned that studying autism in TSC presents unique opportunities, right? Because the frequency of autism in TSC is pretty high. Around 50% of people with TSC will go on to develop autism. And secondly, because in many cases, TSC can be diagnosed early before you would even 
begin to detect some of those behavioral challenges that you mentioned in the two buckets. So how is autism in TSC similar to the general population and how is it different? Yeah, so we actually asked that exact question in our early uh, detection study. So in that study, we follow babies, as I said, with TSC as early as three months of age. Truthfully, by the time we saw most kids, it was closer to six months. And we followed them really closely and we tested their development and their behavior. And then we collected EEG to, again, examine these biomarkers. And we followed babies all the way up to 36 months. And we know that at about 36 months is when we feel that we can make a really reliable autism diagnosis. And again, part of the reason for that is that before for 36 months, you can make a diagnosis, but you need a child to be able to have the social skills that you would want to see, right? To determine whether they're not exhibiting those social skills, right? So like a six-month-old doesn't have a lot of social skills outside of maybe some eye contact and smiling. So you can't really diagnose autism, but as they get older, you can. So between two and three is when we make a reliable diagnosis. So what we did was at three, we you know, and I want to emphasize that anytime we saw red flags, meaning if there were developmental delays or concerning behaviors, we absolutely gave feedback to the parents so that they could go and actually use that information to try to get early intervention services. So we absolutely wanted to make sure we were intervening at every step. But anyway, what we did was at, at when we saw the kiddos at age three, we did all the what we call standardized autism testing. And there's a couple of tests, one in particular that we do in the field, and it's called the ADOS, the Autism Diagnostic observation schedule. It's kind of a big name, but it's basically a play-based assessment that a clinician does with a child. And you can elicit a lot of these behaviors that I was describing in those two buckets. And so we collected all those ADOS data and we actually were able to compare them to age-matched children with autism who did not have TSC. Because it turned out when I was at UCLA at the time, and we had many large autism studies underway. And there was a, a, one researcher in particular, Dr. Connie Kasari, who had a really large intervention study for toddlers with autism. And so this was a great opportunity to ask exactly the question you asked me is, how do kids with TSC compare to children with autism who don't have TSC? And interestingly, what we found was that there weren't a lot of differences, which is actually great news because it actually helps justify the need for similar interventions for children with TSC as those that we're giving to children without TSC who have autism. So when we mapped all the ADOS scores, you know, they mapped almost perfectly onto the scores that we would see in children without TSC. Now, the one caveat to that that I want to emphasize is that if you think of the whole autism spectrum, like in the in the population outside of TSC, the rate of what we call intellectual disability, so meaning having cognitive impairment also, it's not 100%. It's about a third of children with autism in the whole spectrum have intellectual disability. That rate is higher in TSC. So in TSC, children who have autism are more likely to also have cognitive challenges or cognitive impairment. So the rate of intellectual disability in children with autism in TSC is higher than the general population. It's probably somewhere between 50 and 70%. Keeping that caveat in mind, does that correlation of the ADOS scores, does that suggest that perhaps research in autism and TSC could potentially have wider implications for the more general autism community? Definitely. And vice versa. 100%. I think what we learn when we study autism and TSC can absolutely be applied more broadly. And I think also what we learn in studies of autism more broadly could be applied to children with autism and TSC. And in fact, I think that is actually what really motivated 
our current early intervention clinical trial called JETS, you know, JASPER early intervention for TSC. You know, JASPER is an intervention that's been studied in non-TSC autism. Some people call it idiopathic autism, meaning there's no known cause. I don't love that term because there's other causes that we can identify, but just non-TSC autism. We know that JASPER, which is was actually developed by Dr. Connie Kasari at UCLA, is a very effective intervention to improve social communication skills. And so once we found that these children with TSC had very similar autism symptoms and signs to children without TSC and autism, we thought, well, why don't we ask the question as to whether JASPER works in TSC? And the premise is that if we can show in a really rigorous randomized control trial, which is what we're doing now, we're almost done, you know, that'll help justify us recommending early interventions like JASPER to children with TSC as they're being diagnosed. Because, you know, what I was finding clinically, and I'm sure many of the clinicians would agree with this, is I often have patients with TSC who come to me and the parent says, well, I tried to get interventions for autism for my child, and I was told by whoever it is, the insurance company, by regional center, that it's TSC, it's not autism. So because they have TSC, they're not eligible for autism services. And to me, those are apples and oranges, right? I mean, TSC may be the cause of the autism, But the autism is those behaviors that I described, and that's what needs intervention. And so if we can show that, hey, these symptoms are similar to children without TSC and these interventions can work, that gives me as a clinician much more fuel to be able to really justify the need and advocate for the need for these interventions. Talking about those interventions and just taking a step back for just a second, what are common interventions for autism spectrum disorder? What do they look like? I know you mentioned Jasper as an example developed by Connie Kasari. What is Jasper? Yes. So Jasper is a behavioral intervention and it falls under a much larger umbrella of interventions that I'm sure many of the parents have heard about called ABA. ABA stands for Applied Behavior Analysis. Very technical, kind of odd sounding term, but what ABA basically refers to is any intervention, meaning a behavioral intervention that is aimed to modify behavior. That's it. So you can imagine there's lots of different types of ABA. The most extreme type, if you will, and I think of extreme as the most adult directed, meaning the adult is sort of sitting with the child and really directing what is happening in the intervention and really trying to drive a certain outcome. The most extreme of that is something called discrete trial training. And that's what people often kind of synonymize with ABA. It's an interventionist sitting at a table with a child, whatever the skill is. Say it's something as simple as being able to count to 10. Okay, so they'll reinforce that over and over and over again. And every time the child gets it right, they get a little reward. It might be a piece of candy. It might be a sticker, whatever the child finds rewarding. And then they do it again and they do it again and they do it again. And then they take lots of data. There's like binders of data that the interventionists take. So that's kind of one extreme of ABA, but then there's more play-based ABA types. And those are ones where, especially for little kids, they're very effective where the interventionist is still trying to modify behavior, but they're doing it through play. And Jasper is one of those types of interventions where you're really using play to try to improve specifically social communication skills. So you're not really focusing on cognition or you know learning. You're really focusing on things like, again, gesturing, eye contact, responding to name, responding to another individual, playing, advancing your level of play. 
those are the kinds of things that Jasper really focuses on. And there's a load of other types of ABA. You know, what I always tell parents is it would be ideal if we could say, hey, based on your child's profile, this is the exact behavioral intervention your child needs. And we'll get there. I think there's a lot of studies being done now that are trying to really help define that better. But right now, what really happens is it ends up being really an issue of practicality. The behavioral intervention a child gets depends on what's available in their community, what's available in the school, you know, what is affordable based on insurance. I mean, you know, what's a good fit with an interventionist. So some of those very practical considerations are what drive the choice of intervention, which is okay. What I always tell parents is, you know, get whatever intervention you can. We'll make, you know, we'll make recommendations on the fact that your child needs intervention, ABA based on the autism diagnosis, and then you try it out. And if it's not a good fit or you don't like it, then you try something new. So speaking of challenges to find the right type of intervention, you mentioned the JETS trial earlier, and in many ways, the pandemic kind of upended everything, including creating challenges to get people to come into clinic for intervention. And so ultimately, the trial pivoted to offer more remote intervention. So how did that transition go? How did it work? What were some lessons learned making that transition? Yeah. And so here's what's really interesting about this is our transition to remote preceded COVID. So thank goodness. Yeah. So here's what happened. And this is all thanks to parents, many of whom are probably listening to this. So, and the TS Alliance. So basically we started Jasper in 2018. And when we started it, the plan, as you alluded to, was that a child would come to the site with their parent, obviously with their babies. So these are, you know, these are one to three-year-olds would come to either UCLA or Boston Children's every week and receive the intervention. Now this intervention, JASPER, which stands for, it's a very long name, but it stands for Joint Attention, Symbolic Play, Engagement, and Regulation. And those are all the things that are being targeted basically in the intervention, all nonverbal communication skills, social communication skills. It's a parent-mediated intervention, which means the, the intervention is actually teaching the parent tools that they can then use with their child because that's the ideal way to scale something, right? I mean, the parent is the one or any caregivers with their child much more than an interventionist will be. So the idea was the parent would come every week and get Jasper training and then they would go home and they'd practice it and they'd come back and do another session. And so we started this trial and there was so much excitement about this trial because it really was the first behavioral intervention randomized control trial in TSC and in babies, right? So we're, you know, trying to target early intervention, which we think has the most impact. So we started the trial and within six months, we had like two families enroll. And we had so many families who had called the TS Alliance and called us and said, we're so excited. We're so interested in joining. We just can't make it every week. It's impossible. My child is epilepsy. My child is like four other physicians are going to. Like I have other kids at home. Like there's no way I can get to you once a week. That's why we pivoted. So we actually took a step back and we worked with actually the TS Alliance. We worked with NIH, who's our funder, talked to families and fi- tried to figure out like, what can we do to modify this? Because we do not want to lose out on giving families the chance to access this really exciting opportunity. And so we pivoted and converted the entire study to remote. It was still pretty fast because we didn't lose want to lose out on a lot of time. And it was very low budget, actually, the way we did it. And the funny thing is when we did it, we used Zoom and I had never heard of, like none of us had heard of Zoom, which I find hilarious because now like you say the word Zoom and I have like PTSD from Zoom because of the amount of Zoom we've used during COVID. And we actually published a paper on 
It came out last year in Journal of Neurodevelopmental Disorders. Carly Hyde is the first author. She's been the powerhouse behind this study. You know, she's getting her master's in public health and, and then is going to get a PhD actually in public health, really inspired by this work actually. But what we did was we set it up where the parents still had to come once at the beginning and they would get kind of a Jasper boot camp from the intervention team. And then we'd send them home with an iPad. And the iPad was something that would record. And so what they would do is they would practice Jasper. We gave them handouts and other things. And again, Connie Kasari's team put this together really quickly, although she's done some remote work in other studies, just not at the scale. Parents would read up on Jasper. And then once a week, they would record one of their sessions with their child. And that session would get uploaded onto like a common server. And the interventionist at each site would download the video and watch it. And then they would do a Zoom meeting with the parent and give them feedback and then the next week would be like the next module. We sent parents reminders just to say like, hey, wondering if you've done practice Jasper today, how much if you have, no pressure, if you did none, no big deal. You know, that kind of thing, just checking in. Our enrollment went from two kids to like 20 in less than a year. So here's what we've learned. Remote is better. <laughs> period. And that it's too much of a burden to ask families to do what we often ask them to do in clinical trials. And I think what happens when we overburden families is we limit the families that actually get enrolled and we end up selecting for families that have the resources that are needed or have children, frankly, that are maybe less medically impacted or are closer in distance, right? So it's like all these practical things end up getting selected for, which is not representative of the whole population. So remote is better. But what we also learned is that remote isn't perfect and it still requires a lot of work. And so interestingly, if you look at our demographics of our study now, we definitely have much better geographic diversity. We have kids from all over the country. But quite frankly, our socioeconomic and racial representation is still not that diverse. So we're still not reaching all our families. And we're really thinking hard about what can we do better? How do we make it even easier for families? You know, because some families don't even have access to technology. They're not savvy with iPads and can, you know, record and do all the things that we're asking them to do or may not have internet that's consistent enough to do Zoom. There's a lot, you know? And so I think we need to we need to think even harder about how to make these more accessible. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that any opportunity to remove barriers from participation in clinical trials is valuable. Exactly. And I think, you know, we as clinicians and as researchers have the best intentions. Our goal is to, you know, learn and discover so that we can help our families. That's fundamentally the goal. It's not to write papers and to get accolades and all that. It's to do good works. We help our families. And so, you know, all of these experiences help us do our job better. But I do think that what really is needed, and again, we did, I mean, the TS Lines was really helpful. And I'm not just saying this, this is the TS Lines website podcast. Like we really partnered with, you know, Kari and Steve and everyone to think about like, how do we make this work as accessible as possible, right? And so it was helpful and we got feedback from families, but I think we're still scratching the surface. I think there's, we need to learn even more about like, what are really the barriers? You know, is it, is it really burden of time? Is it the technology? Is it a buy-in even? Is it that like, you know, we're not even, we're not messaging the goals of the work well enough to get engagement of our, all our families? Is it just literally disseminating the information about the study more broadly so people know about it? I'll give you an example. Like I just moved from UCLA to CHLA 
And CHLA is a safety net hospital, which means that we take care of kids regardless of their ability to pay. We mostly are Medi-Cal insured families and mostly Hispanic. So more than 60% of our families are Spanish speaking. None of the families at CHLA knew about the JET study, you know, and I'm being honest about that. It's That's no criticism of anyone. It's just the reality, right? So we clearly did not do a good enough job as investigators to deliver the information about the availability of these kinds of research projects to all our families. Part of it is like, we don't offer, we don't have Spanish buyers, right? We, we actually, you know, struggled with Spanish families because we don't have interventionists that speak fluent Spanish and that we're changing now for the last leg of the study. So, you know, that's just an example of, you know, it's humbling and it, it makes us, it, it reminds me that, you know, I, we have to get out of our, you know, to be sort of extreme about this, but get out a little bit of our ivory tower or our like academic bubble and really like, you know, get our feet and hands dirty with really thinking about like, how do we best engage our community? And again, I think partnerships with the TS Alliance are key for this. Absolutely. And I think it's an important discussion and reflection that we need to continue having. And I know it's one that we're having as an organization too, about how we can diversify the families that we support and make sure that nobody is getting left behind. So it's heartening to hear that that's a conversation that's happening in research as well. Absolutely. And I do think that COVID, you know, for all of the challenges that COVID raised and the, you know, just devastation with COVID, one of the, I think, you know, bright lights, the, the, the few benefits that emerged from COVID is it forced us to start thinking more creatively about how to deliver science. And it wasn't for, frankly, reasons around wanting to necessarily expand diversity, equity, inclusion. It was around just like, we have studies that are funded and we need to figure out how to keep doing them when people can't leave their houses. It may not have been for the quote, right reason, but it forced all of us. And so I'll t- I mean, I had so many other studies that were not, you know, TSC related, where we had to pivot very quickly because these were in-person studies and we had to figure out like, how do we do assessments remotely? You know, how do we engage families with these studies when we cannot see them in person? And we figured it out. It wasn't perfect. It was, you know, messy, but we did it. And I think we learned a lot from that. You know, I think, as you know, I mean, there's also been a heightened awareness, you know, sort of in, in parallel with what happened with COVID you know, probably amplified by George Floyd and and everything that, you know, and everything that ensued after. But I think obviously there's also been a heightened awareness of the limitations in research in our ability to, again, adequately address diversity, equity, inclusion. And we've known about it for a long time. I think it just, again, got amplified over the last few years. And I'm glad that that happened so that we paid attention. And we, you know, many of us in our different centers audited our own studies. We did at UCLA and we found that we were, even in our studies of kids with specific genetic syndromes, where you would think we would have a more representative group, we found that most of our population was kids who had parents who had graduate degrees, you know, and were mostly white and were, you know, living in suburban areas where they could get to our sites. And we took a hard look at our own shortcomings, if you will. And it's not intentional. I think it's just because research is hard and it's hard to get engaged in research. Auditing ourselves at UCLA, I mean, that really led to some initiatives to figure out ways to better, you know, engage our community. And now that I'm at CHLA, like I'm kind of living now in this space with families who have never been in research. And that's part of the reason I actually moved to CHLA was to try to, you know, I, we brought all our studies with us, right? And our goal is to actually bring this research to the, these communities, but also learn from the communities how to improve our engagement. So my final question for you is, in your mind, what are the big questions that still need to be answered about autism and TSC? 
And you know what current research other than the Jets trial excite you? So what's exciting about TSC is that we actually have what we call disease-modifying therapies, right? Like we understand the mechanism underlying TSC and we have mTOR inhibitors. We have other treatments that really target the pathway. And that's super exciting, right? And we know that they're effective for certain things like SEGAs, right? Or epilepsy. We still have not answered the question, do these disease-modifying therapies improve neurodevelopment maybe prevent some of the neurodevelopmental disabilities that we see in TSC, such as autism or global developmental delay or intellectual disability. We're going to be able to answer that. So Darcy Kruger, as you know, just, and I'm, I'm, I'm involved with that study, you know, just got recently funded for the STEPS trial, which is an early mTOR inhibitor trial. And the two endpoints are epilepsy and neurodevelopmental disabilities. So we're going to be able to answer that question. And I think that's a key question is, can we improve neurodevelopmental outcomes in TSC if we intervene very early? I think that to me is sort of the big burning question. I think JETS will help answer that at some level. I think the mTOR inhibitor you know, studies will answer that at some level. And ultimately, we need a study that combines both because we're going to need to do both. And I think prevent, right? We're waiting for those outcomes to be published, but prevent will help answer some of that because that's an epilepsy prevention trial, but neurodevelopment was one of the big outcomes. So all of these kind of disease-modifying early intervention trials excite me a lot. So I think we're going to learn so much. And I think there's more opportunity to make exact neurodevelopmental change in TSC than there is in most other conditions because these babies are diagnosed so early. The other thing I would though say, because I'm sure many of you listening have adults with TSC or older kids, and I, I know there's sometimes frustration that so much of our research is focused on early infancy. I think, you know, I'm also really excited about, you know, more attention being paid to adults with TSC and really thinking about how do we improve well-being, quality of life and outcomes for our adults, you know, because all these kids grow up and we still need to be thinking about what are the challenges, where are the areas of strength, how do we, again, help best support adults. And so I think we need trials in adults. I think we need more, you know, support programs for adults and we need to understand more what are the, what are the issues facing adults with TSC. So that area also really excites me and I think there's a lot of attention appropriately being paid now to adults with TSC. It's all very exciting and it's really cool to see, as you said, how studies are building off of each other and things we've already learned about disease modification are now, we're testing how far that can really go. And I think it's hopeful time because of researchers like you and Darcy and others who have been committed to studying this for so long that we're making such great strides now. So thank you for the work that you've done and continue to do and Thank you for talking to me today and enlightening me about all of the really exciting things happening in autism and TSC. Well, thank you for having me. And thanks everyone for listening. We are still, just quickly a plug, we're still enrolling for JETS. We're almost done. So if you have a baby with TSC ages one to three, please contact us and you can go through the TS Alliance. There's a link to the trial there. And we have about six more months of enrolling. So getting close to the end. Yeah, I'll be sure to include contact information for the JETS trial in the show description. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. 
My thanks again to Shafali for the fascinating conversation. I especially appreciated her candidness about how, while remote intervention has opened up opportunities to participate in research to more families, there's still a lot of work researchers, clinicians, and even organizations like the TSC Alliance need to do to reduce the barriers to participating in research and ensure that our clinical trials are more representative of all those affected by TSC specifically and autism more generally. Before wrapping this month's episode, I have two bits of housekeeping. First, our 20th anniversary Step Forward to Cure TSC Global Hybrid Walk Run Ride Weekend on May 14th and 15th is now less than two weeks away. And yes, you heard that right. This year's event is hybrid with three in-person events on Saturday, May 14th at Irwindale, California, Carrollton, Texas, and Westchester, Pennsylvania. If you'd like to participate in an in-person event, please check that option while you're registering at stepforwardtocuretsc.org. You can also participate virtually, and we have a ton of live virtual content, starting with Lunch and Learns on Facebook Live all week leading up to the weekend, featuring Kari Rosbeck and Lisa Moss talking to our community leaders and corporate sponsors. Then we have officially kick off our walk weekend on Friday, May 13th at 7 p.m. on Facebook Live. I hope you'll be able to join us. There are so many ways to get involved. Learn more now and help us reach our financial goals by donating or fundraising at stepforwardtocuretsc.org. And of course, I'd like to thank our national sponsors who make this weekend possible. Marinus Pharmaceuticals, Jazz Pharmaceuticals, Nobel Pharma, UCB Inc., Upshur Smith Laboratories LLC, Special Care by Mass Mutual, and Bridge Biogene Therapy. Secondly, we are so excited to host our 2022 World TSC Conference July 28th through the 31st in Dallas, Texas. This amazing event is a one-of-a-kind, bringing together all the leading TSC researchers and clinicians from around the world to help educate our community about all the aspects of TSC. That includes 40 sessions over five different learning paths, so there really is something for everyone. Plus, you have the opportunity opportunity to meet other TSC individuals and families from around the world. We hope you can join us in person, but if you can't, there is a virtual registration option for just $50 that will allow you to view three of the five tracks via live stream and also access recordings of those sessions before everyone else. Seriously, we will not be releasing conference recordings until 2023, so this is a rare opportunity to get cutting-edge information on TSC research and treatment options before anyone else. So why am I telling you this now? Because early bird pricing ends June 1st, so now is the time to register to get the best rate. And if you've already registered, but haven't made your hotel reservation yet, we encourage you to do so as soon as possible. You can learn everything you need to know about the conference at tscalliance.org slash worldtscconference. And of course, thank you to our title sponsor, Jazz Pharmaceuticals, and our presenting sponsor, Nobel Pharma, for supporting this conference. That'll do it for this episode of TSC Now. Thank you so much for listening. And I can't wait to see how you step forward for our global hybrid walk, run, ride in two weeks. Thank you for listening to TSC Now. Our theme song is Take Charge by Young Presidents. Listen to all our episodes and subscribe to the podcast now at tscalliance.org slash tscnow. See you next time.